and welcome to the Media Law Podcast with me, Colette Allen. A delayed start to 2020, but that is because there wasn't anything much to discuss in the first month of this year except Harry and Meghan, which Tom and Paul dissected in the first full-length podcast of the year last month. A lot has happened since then, however, giving us plenty of material to talk about today. I will be discussing the introduction of facial recognition technologies by the London Metropolitan Police with Tom, as well as the John Ware libel claim against the Labour Party. I will also be talking about the pros and cons of the Crime and Courts Act Section 40 with Paul, which handles the costs awarded against defendant publishers who are not members of a press regulator approved by Royal Charter. So to start with facial recognition, because that was something that came out this week, um, the Met Police has announced that facial recognition will be used in small targeted areas of the capital and bespoke lists of suspects wanted for serious and violent crimes will be drawn up each time. They claim that this is consistent with the state's positive obligations to protect the rights of its citizens and is thus a justifiable and proportionate interference to the Article 8 right to privacy. One of the few authorities on the matter so far is the South Wales High Court judgment saying police did not breach the rights of man whose face is scanned by a camera. Whether this is so or not is the first major issue to dissect, and the second is the potential inaccuracies with these technologies. So Tom, just briefly talking about this South Wales judgment, is there a right not to have your face scanned? And is this really even possible to claim in the modern day? Isn't this just very similar to CCTV technologies? And it's kind of naive of us to think that this is a new potential breach of privacy. Well, I would say that facial recognition is a lot more intrusive than CCTV. Yes, the same sort of thing happens in that your face is, your face is caught on camera. Um, but with standard CCTV, there's no real-time identification of who you are unless who you are and where you are going to um, a, a database controlled by the nation's law enforcement. Um with facial recognition technology, the state conceivably knows who you are and where you are and when you are there. And this is blanket. Once a person's face is caught on CCTV, on, on CCTV um, there's no immediate identification. But with the facial recognition technology, as soon as your face is, is caught by the machine, it knows who you are. It remembers you. Um, so... I think this is problematic um, for privacy, and I'm not convinced that the courts have really managed yet to get to grips with just how problematic it is. At base, the privacy argument here is um, it's a principle-based argument, and once you get over the technological hurdles of proving just how intrusive this factually is, um, the principal argument is that it fails as a technology in its deployment to distinguish between uh, lawbreakers and those who are not lawbreakers, between criminals and innocents, between suspects and uh, those who are not suspected at all. Everyone is treated as a potential criminal by the technology. But surely then the fact that you're always going to have a human agent who's using the technology and analysing it. It's not like the technology then makes the arrest itself. It's just part and parcel of other evidence that the police use. Entirely true. But if the essentially it is a large trawling net 
they're going to catch everybody in it and then have a look and see if any of them might be suspects in criminal cases. We're not talking about finding people who are criminals, because if they are criminals, then either they have escaped custody, and there are going to be very few of those, or they are going to be people who have served their time, whether that's in prison or through some other punishment, because only people who have, who, who have been convicted can be labelled definitely criminals. Anyone else, and I suspect that the, the vast majority of people that are being talked about here as the violent and dangerous criminals that the Met hope to catch are suspects, not people who have been convicted of a particular offence. So what's going to happen is that the technology will be used to troll public areas, catch everybody in it, and then see if any of them happen to be a suspect. And in that act of trawling, there is no detailed targeting, no specific, no focused targeting of the technology. It, is it not arguably, though, more focused than CCTV? Because CCTV is doing the same trawling. It's just recording everything that's going past it. But facial recognition technologies are looking specifically at their faces. So in many ways, it's actually, it is more specific. It is. CCTV is... Um, in, in in terms of its trolling nature and the way that, yes, CCTV also treats all individuals as potential suspects. Um, yes, it has that effect, but CCTV is generally used to record what's going on and then if a crime occurs within the vicinity, they would go back, look at the CCTV and see if that provides evidence, not only of whom it is that commits the crime, but of the nature of the crime. The facial recognition technology is just about knowing where people are at any one time, so that if a, a criminal suspect that the Met have lost, uh, have managed to lose sight of, turns up in Leicester Square, they can be picked up. They'll also be picked up alongside the thousands of other people who will be flagged up by the technology and whose movements will then be within the control of the state. So you talk about the kind of principled issue with this. I wonder if there's, if if the issue is more uh, uh, one of consent and the fact that if you look at, say, the King's Cross estate controversy that's happened now, King's Cross estate owners have been in trouble because they were using these facial recognition technologies without telling the public. Do you kind of mitigate the issues if you make it very clear to the public that in certain areas these technologies will be used and so if you really are worried about your face being scanned, just don't go to these areas. And right now, that is what the Met has suggested. It's only going to be used in very small sections of the capital. Mm, so it always starts, isn't it? Um, in terms of the legal requirements around data protection law, then in obtaining some degree of consent from um, the public, yeah, we'll get around some of the legal hurdles on this. But it doesn't affect the principles relating to privacy as an idea rather than the law of privacy, um, which consent being implied simply by sticking around in an area where there's a notice saying, by the way, your face is likely to be scanned. Um, yes, people have the opportunity to decide not to use King's Cross Station in theory, but in practice, if you need to get from London to Bedford, then you're going to have to go through King's Cross Station. Um, and there's no uh, practical alternative for a lot of people 
than to use certain major transport hubs in London. Um, so this is absolutely going to catch people because the consent is, is is not going to be freely given if they're under pressure to use that particular location. That's not going to be a legal problem as such. As I say, you know, you can fulfil the requirements of the statute by doing that. And there have been notices about, oh, it's going to be filming at this particular performance of a play or this football match or whatever for years. And people have been caught on camera in that respect. Um, so you can get around it. But I think the controversy here is going to be, well, should we be doing this given the level of intrusiveness of the technology? Right. And then the second controversy is also the potential inaccuracies, because there's been a lot of criticism that it was the Cardiff University assessment that um, the force used for whether they can bring in um, facial recognition technology. And they didn't even test ethnicity because they didn't have the funds for the trial. Yes. And there have been experiments that have demonstrated that the technology identifies people from minority ethnic backgrounds, particularly people from black ethnic backgrounds, um, far less accurately than it does white people. Right. So then you're just going to only perpetuate the kind of racial biases that people already have. Uh, Absolutely. Um, We already have uh, a high degree of systemic racism in our legal system, and it manifests in all different parts of the legal system, whether you're talking about the chances of a person being incarcerated for um, a first offence, which are markedly higher for people um, from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, to um, the the percentage of people who are incarcerated from particular uh, ethnic backgrounds per capita. Um, And here is going to be another. Uh, I don't understand the technology well enough to understand why the technology is making this mistake, but I find it difficult to believe that it is not something that could have been uh, worked out with some better technology. I think a lot of it's often to do with data sets. So the the data sets that it's trained on is looking predominantly at white faces or something, so it gets better at recognising. That's entirely possible, especially if it's some sort of crude artificial intelligence that's running the whole thing. But it's it's going to perpetuate the same sort of problems. Yeah. Well, Big Brother Watch is um, taking legal action against the Met Police over the automated facial recognition system. So if that plays out, we'll have more to talk about on this. Indeed. Great. Um, a few other things that might play out as this year comes on that we'll discuss on Newscast. One is the John Ware um, suit against the Labour Party, claiming libel following the Panorama programme on anti-Semitism. Um, Tom, do you want to give us a bit of information on that? Yes, I'm looking forward to this case. Um, So back in July, I think it was, 2019, um, BBC's Panorama programme conducted an investigation into the allegations of anti-Semitism that are well known to have been levelled against the Labour Party. Um, The programme was presented by John Ware, who is um, a long-standing investigative journalist. Um, and uh, the program made a whole set of allegations about um, the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour, in particular about interference from the higher echelons of the Labour Party in and around the leader's office in investigating uh, anti-Semitism. Following that uh, episode of Panorama, the Labour Party defended itself and issued a statement 
that the BBC had engaged in deliberate and malicious representations designed to mislead the public. Um, it didn't mention um, John Ware by name, but it did refer to um, the Panorama programme uh, and um, uh, its choice of presenter. Um, so in, in by identifying the presenter, it indirectly um, uh, identifies uh, John Ware. Um, it doesn't necessarily link, um, and this will be a question for the court and the libel case, whether the choice of presenter line actually links with any specific defamatory allegation against John Ware in the statement. Uh, I'm not at this point convinced that it is, but... Um, that's something that will play out at trial. And what's going to be really interesting to look out for is um, the potential for a public interest defence here. Uh, Labour, I would have thought, are likely to say in their defence uh, that this is a matter of acute political controversy upon which um, the facts can be interpreted in uh, different ways and so legitimate, different opinions may be held. And whilst the BBC has expressed its opinion, the Labour Party has likewise expressed its opinion that the BBC's reporting is um, uh, does not come to the right interpretation. Um, and this is the sort of political dialogue that the public interest defence under Section 4 of the Defamation Act of 2013 is, in my view, supposed to foster. So uh, at present, this doesn't, to me look like the sort of case where uh, John Ware and the BBC's claim should be, uh, well, it's not the BBC's claim so far as I'm aware, it is just John Ware's claim, should be successful. Um, but we wait to see how that pans out, um, presumably in the High Court later on in the year. So definitely one to watch out for. Another thing we need to look out for is the Sun and the Man U uh, issue that's happening right now with the reporter that was sent to Ed Woodward. Yes. Um, so Ed Woodward is uh, Manchester United's chief executive. Um, he has been the subject of a number of protests by Manchester United fans in recent times because of the team's uh, performances on the pitch over the last few years. Um, and in particular, in the last few days, last week or so, uh, his house was attacked by some hooligans. Um, the son... Uh, managed to cover this in great detail and could only have covered it in such detail if they'd had someone on the ground as part of uh, the crowd that were attacking the house. Um, so uh, a complaint has been um, sent to Ipso, press regulator to who, which the Sun is uh, signed up, complaining that the Sun has acted unethically here by um, having advance notice of the violent attack on uh, John Ware's house and uh, sending a reporter to cover it, rather than, say, warning uh, Woodward or Manchester United or the police that a person's house was about to be attacked. The Sun has said in its defence that they didn't know there was going to be a violent protest, they just knew there was going to be a protest, and are defending their right to cover the protest. Um, so again, be interesting to see how this one pans out, and if so, um, whether there'll be a, uh, any finding of a breach of journalistic ethics. And especially because, I mean, journalists get tips off all the time, so it's difficult to know which ones are going to go violent or sour. You're just 
you just got to be on the ground straight away. And that is exactly what the sun will say. Yes, um, we will see how uh, accurate that turns out to be. Uh, in Ipso, I, it doesn't strike me as the sort of thing where a complaint is likely to succeed at this point, unless there's strong evidence that uh, there was prior knowledge that it was going to turn violent. Great. Well, there'll be loads for Newcastle to cover in the coming months then. Absolutely. It's uh, already looking like it's going to be uh, an exciting year. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for joining me. I'm now going to talk to Paul about Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act. Um, But take care, Tom. Thank you. See you next time. Last week, I tweeted a quote from an article supporting the Conservative government's manifesto promise to repeal Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act 2014. Paul was quick to email me, taking issue with my impulsive support of an argument claiming to speak for freedom of expression. We thought this warranted a proper discussion, as it turns out Paul is quite the fan of Section 40. Section 40 is the provision which was introduced immediately after Leveson, and essentially says that if a publisher is not a member of a regulator which is approved under Royal Charter, then in any litigation the cause must award costs against the defendant publisher unless one of two exceptions applies. Paul, do you want to go into what these exceptions are? Because that's actually not something that the article details. Yes, uh, thanks for that, Colette. Um, yeah, so Section 40 is something that I'm, I'm very keen on because um, it says, it, I mean, it's horribly worded. I take that, that criticism, it's horribly worded. But it says, if you were uh, a defendant and you're not part of an approved regulator, then you would have to pay costs only if uh, the, the issues raised um, were appropriate to be dealt with by an arbitrator. Uh, so if the issues in the claim are too complicated to be dealt with through arbitration, then that makes the court the most appropriate forum, and therefore the fact of the claimant having to go to court isn't something that the defendant should have to pay for and costs won't be awarded against them. The other circumstances are where, and this is a direct quote, are where it's just inequitable in all the circumstances of the case um, to award costs um, in favour of the defendant or against the claimant, whichever way you want to uh, think about it. And so what you have there are two circumstances where what the article describes as as an absolute rule um, does not apply. So do you think there's actually much to be said for the argument that this legislation is a threat to free speech? Because that's definitely something that campaign groups like the Index on Censorship have argued. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really clear on what the, the free speech argument is. And it, the, the unfortunate thing about the free speech argument is the way that it's been put in a lot of these articles, even the one in Index on Censorship, it just looks a bit convenient for the press to say, well, this is our threat to our free speech and we don't need to explain what we mean by that in any further detail. And actually, I think this claim does call for an explanation in more detail. I have to say, I don't think Section 40 is perfect, but the point of Section 40 is that this is a device by which to get newspapers into a scheme of compulsory press regulation. And what we've seen in the aftermath of Leveson is that newspapers haven't been forced to engage with uh, regulation. 
In fact, The Guardian, The Independent, The Financial Times are not part of a press regulatory scheme. They are not part of IPSO. They sit outside of IPSO. And even those members that are part of IPSO, um, IPSO, it claims to have the power to find members for serious and systematic breaches of its code. Um, to date, there have been around 2,000 breaches of that code, and IPSO has not yet issued an award against it. And this is unsurprising. IPSO is hardly likely to issue fines against its members because it's a voluntary club. And who would want to stay in a voluntary club where there are fines for not playing by the rules? So Section 40 serves an incredibly important purpose to get newspapers to take regulation seriously. And we've seen in the aftermath of Caroline Flack's tragic death, the popular response is that newspapers need to start taking regulation seriously, and this is the means by which to ensure that. But nothing's happened since 2014. So why would they suddenly start taking Section 40 seriously now? Well, the the problem with Section 40 is it hasn't been activated yet. So this is why newspapers haven't had to take Section 40 seriously. It's on the books, uh, but it's not um, it's not yet law. Right. And so that would have to come in the future down the line. Yeah, so Section 40 would need to be uh, enforced. It would need to come into force uh, to have the impact uh, that um, reformers would want it to have. But the idea that the very fact of Section 40 is a threat to free speech is one that I think is simply too convenient and it hasn't been properly argued If there was an argument, I would love to hear it and engage with it. The point of Section 40 is that it puts members uh, of a non-approved regulator on the back foot. So the threat to free speech, such as it is, isn't clear because all Section 40 is obliging newspapers to do is to pay if, by virtue of the fact of staying outside an approved regulator, they then put the claimant to the cost of having to go to court to defend the claimant's rights. Now, that for me is not a threat to free speech. Is it perhaps that, like you said, Ipso and Impress, they're not actually approved regulators, right? Impress is. Oh, Impress is. Okay. But one because one of the requirements obviously is is of section 40 is that regulatory body is approved by royal charter yeah. is that where potentially the free speech issue comes in because pre- the press are concerned that that would be too politically connected royal charter in some way means that this regulatory body would be adhering to political interests yeah, I mean, Ipso isn't on a great footing to try and argue the political involvement concern point that you've just mentioned, because they have, in fact, just appointed uh, a serving politician as their chair. So their concern with politics seems to be when it when it suits them. Um, nevertheless, the Royal Charter doesn't actually specify uh 
what the provisions of the Code of Conduct have to be. It simply says that there should be provisions and that these provisions should satisfy the right to freedom of expression, uh, the right to privacy, uh, and should uh, enforce accuracy standards uh, and protect individuals from intrusion. And that's it. Right. So really, the solution here is to engage with Section 40 and make it useful rather than just repealing it and moving on. Yeah, the Section 40 uh, is important. So my concern is this, if we do away with Section 40, because it somehow represents this threat to press freedom, then let's deal with the threat to press freedom. Let's not just ignore the reason why Section 40 was introduced in the first place. The reason it was introduced in the first place was because of the need for a more accountable newspaper system and more accountable newspaper system of regulation. That need has not disappeared. So it's all very well for newspapers to talk about this threat to press freedom. Well, what about the threat to individual rights? What about the fact that individuals can't afford, generally, to go to court. The mistake that people make is to think that what newspapers do is to simply upset celebrities and politicians. And in fact, this isn't true at all. What newspapers do on a day-to-day basis is to disturb and in some cases ruin the lives of ordinary members of the public. And it's those people that would most benefit from a fairer, accountable system of press regulation and this is all the more poignant given caroline black's death like you just mentioned exactly right right well thank you very much paul i think we'll leave it there thank you Colette. thanks for listening to the first newscast of 2020 as ever follow us on twitter at media law podcast and tweet us any questions you'd like us to cover in newscast see you next time